We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 54 and 55 this morning as we wrap up our summer series. But before we look at God's word together, please join me once again asking the Lord for his help. God, you told us that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. We come to you this morning asking you to help us feast on your word, to know the love that you have for your own. Oh Lord, would we have our affections rised for you as we look at your word here this morning. Help us. We are needy. We can do nothing apart from you. Feed us. This morning, O Lord, help our affections for you grow as we get a glimpse of your glory here this morning. Amen. It's another day on the job. He goes into the the city to share the good news. But the news wasn't to the likings of the people. Instead of just walking away, The people decided they've had enough. They threw stones at the man until they thought he was dead. What does this man do after almost dying for sharing some news? He went out there to share the news again. This is Paul in Acts 14. What faith, what courage. How does one endure like this? It's a person who is convicted that nothing will separate them from the love of God. Not tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or sword or danger. It's a person who prayed that we would be able to comprehend what is the length and width and height and depth of God's love. And to know the love that surpasses knowledge. One way we continue to fight the good fight of faith in all seasons, the good, the bad, and the ugly, is to contemplate and to treasure the love of God displayed in Jesus through the Spirit. Isaiah 54 through 55 transports us into the reality of God's love for his people. May we all see and delight in the love of God towards us who believe this morning. It's important to give a little context to our passage again here this morning. Remember that God told Isaiah what the lay of the land would be in Isaiah 40 through 66. Ultimately, they would be defeated by Babylon and live in foreign lands. But they would not live in foreign lands for long. In Isaiah 40 through 48, God promised to free his people from Babylonian exile. Someone would deliver God's people. This deliverer would be Cyrus. What news! Good tidings to all! But God's people 
had been set free from Babylon. But as the saying goes, you can take the people out of Babylon, but how do you get Babylon out of the people? Although Israel was set free from exile, their default mode was sin. Taste the hope in Isaiah 49 through 55 with me. There we see that God promised to free his people from sin. God would bring forgiveness to his people by providing atonement. Someone would deliver God's people from sin. This deliverer would be the suffering servant. So if Isaiah 40 through 48 spells out the deliverance from Babylon through Cyrus, then Isaiah 49 through 55 speaks to the deliverance from sin through the suffering servant. This week, last week, we got to behold the wonders of the suffering servants. This week, our text invites us to respond with a joyful song to the king who saves. Here's the big idea that we'll be looking at this morning. God's people sing the tune of praise to the king who saves. God's people sing the tune of praise to the king who saves. It's my hope that we would treasure the king who saves as we look at his faithful, never-ending, loyal love for his people. Let's start by looking at Isaiah 54, verses 1 through 3. Here we see that God's people sing the tune of praise. That's our first point. God's people sing the tune of praise. Verse 1 starts off with a command. Look at verse 1 with me. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. Sing. Drop down a line and it says, break forth into singing. There are many different occasions for singing. Here the idea of singing carries the idea of one shouting for joy. God is calling for joyous singing. Not passionless singing, but singing like you mean it. Not a tune of doom, but a tune of joyful praise. Look closely with me at who's addressed. Verse 1 says, The barren one is to burst forth into song of joyful praise. So here's the image. A barren woman is commanded to sing for joy, for she will have children soon. Likewise, God's fruitless people are commanded to sing for joy as they will spread across the whole earth. They would bless the nations like they were intended to. We don't want to miss what Isaiah said. Look, look with me at verse 1 one more time. It says, Sing, O barren one, for the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married. A contrast is happening here. 
On the one hand, you have someone who has no chance of having children. Her husband is gone. On the other hand, you have someone who does have chance of having children. She has a husband. Isaiah is saying that the growth of this family in verses 1 through 3 is like the person who has no chance of having children because her husband is gone. But here's the catch. This woman who has no husband will have more children than the woman who has a husband. Many children, but no husband. Here's what Isaiah is saying. There's going to be a bunch of people created by a supernatural birth. A miracle family. What's all this about? Well, we get what's happening here when we see the connection between our text and Isaiah 53. Isaiah 54 describes the new covenant. The new covenant is based upon the life, death, and resurrection of the servant king in Isaiah 53. There's a bunch of parallels between Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 54 which helps us see this. For instance, the many accounted to be righteous by the servant king in Isaiah 53.11 are the many of the miracle family in Isaiah 54.1. This explains how God intended on creating a people through supernatural birth. The servant king would die for his people, give life where there was none. The servant's death led to life for many. Sing the tune of praise. God is giving new life. It's no small thing. Isaiah 54, 2 through 3 tells us the extent of God's work. Let's read those verses now. Enlarge your tent. Stretch out your curtains. Lengthen your cords and get stronger stakes. If you have a tent that manned four people, you're going to need a tent that mans ten. We get the picture. God is giving new life. So much new life that God's people would possess the nations. There would be life where there was none. God will give enough heart transplants to people that they could fill entire cities. The great physician will give life to people over, all over the world. So in these verses, there's a command to sing the tune of praise. The command is traced back to and stands on top of the work of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. God saves his people by grace and then tells us about the pathway to obedience. We don't earn God's favor by doing enough good works. We are saved by grace, and that's why we do good works. Are you struggling to obey God this morning? Do you feel worn out? Brothers and sisters, remember that you were saved by the work of another, the suffering servant, King Jesus who died on the cross. 
We start the faith and grow in the faith by trusting in the finished work of the suffering servant on our behalf. Preach this to yourself daily, regularly. Now that, we're reminded that, now that we're reminded of this truth, let's think a little bit about the call to sing. What's the occasion for this singing? It's that God is giving a multitude of, is saving a multitude of people. This calls for joy. God is doing a miracle every time he saves someone. Imagine going to a friend's funeral... Then four days later, you see them at the line in Dunkin' Donuts. But you think to yourself, eh, that's cool and all, but no biggie. No! Right? We would run over there, and we'd, we'd be full of joy. We'd give them a big old hug. What joy! God gives spiritual life to people all of the time. What joy! If you want to be encouraged in your faith, take someone from church out to coffee or lunch and ask them about how God saved them. Come to the men's breakfast and let's hear a testimony about how God saves people. God gives life where there is none. This calls for singing. We see in verses 2 through 3 that God is saving for himself a people, and this is a downright miracle. God will save his people, and he calls all of us to be a part of that great work. Let's continue to tell the good news of the gospel. Church, let's continue to be about the business of declaring the gospel to everyone and everywhere. God's people are to sing the tune of praise. We'll now see that they are to sing to the king who saves. Isaiah has been painting a portrait of the king throughout Isaiah. He's been looking at this king from different angles. Isaiah 6 displays the holy king who will discipline his people. We get a glimpse of the international king who will hold the whole world accountable in Isaiah 24 and 25. This summer, we've seen the shepherd king who will bring in the new exodus in Exodus 40 and Exodus 53. In our passage, we see the king from yet another angle. In Isaiah 54, the king is the covenant-keeping husband of his people. This brings us to our second point, the king who saves. God's people are to sing the tune of praise to the king who saves. Let's see what our passage says about this king who saves. In verses 4 through 10, the king saves his bride by removing her shame. In verses 11 through 17, the king saves his bride by bringing her to safety. Look at verse 4. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, 
for you will not be disgraced. God tells them not to fear, be confounded, or feel humiliated. Why might they fear or feel humiliated? Well, it's because they don't want to be ashamed or disgraced. Shame and disgrace are the public exposure of all your shortcomings before others and God. Shame makes us want to hide. This suggests that they were struggling with their embarrassing past or current circumstances. Putting all of this together, they conjured up the idea that their shortcomings or circumstances, either past or present, would be publicly exposed before others and God. And God tells them, do not fret, do not fear this idea. Shame is like when you catch a child in the middle of disobeying. What do they do? They hide in their shirt. They hide. They don't want their, their shortcomings to be exposed. All of our deeds and thoughts and attitudes will be exposed to God one day for judgment. God is the perfect judge who must pour out his wrath on all of our shortcomings and sin. There will be no place to hide. All humanity is guilty for rebelling against God, and we are all full of shame. We should rightly feel shame when we sin against God, but we don't have to stay that way. There's a pathway to freedom from shame. We're given rock-solid foundations for why one doesn't need to fear the idea of shame or disgrace here in our text. First, one doesn't need to fear the idea of shame because, as Isaiah 54, verse 4 says, it says, You will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. The past is long gone, forgiven and forgotten. You will forget the shame of your past. Yet, It's in verse 5 where we're given this rock-solid foundation for why one doesn't need to fear the idea of shame and disgrace. Look down at verse 5 with me. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called You will forget your past because of who you're wedded to. Your maker is your husband. The picture is God is the husband and his people is the bride. The one who created you, sustains you, who you're accountable to is your husband. God is in covenant relationship with his people. He is the ever faithful one who never breaks any of his vows. He is the one who never wavers in his love. He is the one who comes and rescues his bride and he will never let her go. 
You won't need to be ashamed because you're in a relationship with the Lord of hosts. He's over all the heavenly armies and they do his biddings. You won't need to be ashamed because the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The idea here is that God takes all of his people's needs as his own. He does all that is necessary to bring restoration to his people. You won't need to be ashamed because you're known by the God of the whole earth. He owns everything. You won't need to be ashamed because the one you're in relationship with has a holy love for his bride. Isaiah then gives us three snapshots of this king's holy love. The first portrait is in verses 6 through 8. Let's read that together. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Look at the place God's people are in. Like a wife deserted. Grieved in spirit. Cast off. A pace of pain and despair. God has called people in these places of pain and sin to himself. There's a second of departure but an eternity of love. Oh, what it must have felt like to be deserted by God, to experience his overflowing anger, to have him hide his face, exile, shame, guilt, far from God. Oh, but what does, what does the text say? It says he will gather his bride with compassion God takes pity on his people. He comes back for his own. He shows them mercy. And it's a holy compassion, a compassion that only God can show because he is infinite. God will have compassion on his own people with an eternal, loyal, covenant-keeping, faithful kind of love. Always keeps his vows. Secures the salvation of his bride. Takes pity on her dies for her, cares for her. Let's zoom in on the second portrait of this king's holy love who saves his people in verses 8 or verses 9. Read that with me. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. It begins by saying, this is like the days of Noah to me. God is making a comparison. Just as God made a promise to Noah then, so now God is making a promise to his people. In Genesis 9 to 11, God swore to never flood the whole earth again. And God has always and always will keep that promise. 
In a similar way, God has sworn that he would never be angry with his people. God's word to love his people is unbreakable. Nothing will prevent God from loving his own. He will always hold fast to his own. His people are in his hands so that no one could snatch them out. The one who began the good work will see it through. No sword, no king will separate God's people from his love. The third portrait of God's holy love for his bride, this king who saves, is found in verse 10. Let's read it. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. The mountains may depart and the hills may be removed. Mountains aren't simply removed. It's no easy thing to get rid of a mountain. It's known for being firm and unmovable. Yet even mountains may be moved. But unlike mountains, God's love will never depart. We can have more confidence in God's everlasting love for his own than whole mountains being removed. One thing is for certain. God never goes back on his word, and his word says that he has a loyal love for his bride. This covenant of peace, the new covenant, will be established, and it has in the person of Jesus. So God has a holy wrath for sinners who will endure everlasting shame, but has a holy love that can never be moved for repentant sinners. The pathway to freedom is to be in relationship with the king who saves. Have faith that he is who he says he is and will do what he says he'll do for you. Believe that the king died for your sins and bore your shame. Believe that your sinful past is forgiven based upon the work of another. Do you believe that God loves you, brother and sister? Look to his word. You may not feel that he does. Look to his word. God shows mercy. He has compassion. He cares for his people. He promised to never forsake or leave his people. God's people can have more confidence in God's everlasting love than for whole mountains being removed. Look at what he did in Isaiah 53. Look at what he did on the cross. He, has, he loves his own with a special love. I encourage you to take this next month to really dig deep into what it means that God has a special love for his own. One way you could do this is by picking up one of D.A. Carson's books. It's a devotional. It's a, it's a series, and it's called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. I encourage you to take it up and read. God's people sing the tune of praise to the king who saves. 
The king saves his bride by removing her shame in verses 4 through 10. And in verses 11 through 17, the king saves his bride by bringing her to safety. We began to behold these realities in verses 11 and 12. Let's read those verses together. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agates and your gates of carbuncles and all your wall of precious stones. God's people will be moved from the house of sticks to the house of bricks. In the house of sticks, God's people are afflicted, storm-tossed, and find no comfort. But they will be transferred from the house of sticks to the house of bricks. God will bring his people home so that they could live in an established, beautiful city full of precious and unique stones. Now remember, Isaiah 40 through 48 speaks to the deliverance from Babylon through Cyrus. And Isaiah 49 through 55 speaks to the deliverance from sin through the suffering servant. The restoration from Cyrus was a big deal. God's people were delivered from physical bondage and able to rebuild Israel. The restoration from Cyrus was a big deal, but when set against the backdrop of the restoration from the suffering servants, it's much smaller. No comparison. The suffering servant brought restoration from sin. God would restore people from all over the world, and they would take possessions of the nations, as Isaiah 54, 1 through 3 said. This means that the restoration of Jerusalem is much greater as well, one that extends to the whole world, and we'll see that in Isaiah 55. The point is that restoration is one that has sure foundation, provides safety, and comfort for God's people. What hope do we have? Verse 13 describes God's people. All those within the covenant community know the Lord. Listen to verse 13 with me. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In the Old Covenant, there were people who were part of the covenant community who were saved and those who weren't. Not so for those under the New Covenant. All those in this covenant will be taught by the Lord. New hearts, new lives, new covenants. New and lasting peace secured by the suffering servant. God's people sing the tune of praise to the king who saves. The final verse in Isaiah 54 describes the safety one finds in God's place. Hear these verses with me, starting in verse 14. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near to you. If anyone stirs up strife, it is not from me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I have also created the ravager to destroy. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. 
and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. The city of the suffering king is founded in righteousness. God brings salvation to his people and rules justly. The city is established in righteousness and God's people will find no occasion to fear because oppression is far away. God doubles down and highlights that his people will live with him in safety. He's the king who rescues his bride and brings her to safety. God just gave assurance that the city would be far from oppression. In verse 15, it's as if God says, okay, okay, Let's just say anyone does stir up strife with you. You don't have need to fear because it wasn't from me. He's not saying that God is not sovereign over what happens. Rather, he's saying that you will no longer need to fear an enemy to, to come and discipline you because you're righteous. You have the righteousness of another. But if someone were to come, you would prevail. You would find victory. They wouldn't stand a chance. They don't have to fear because God has the whole world in his hands, as verses 16 and 17 argue. God is, the, God is sovereign over the manufacturer of the weapons as well as the intent and outcome of the warrior. As the sovereign king who is providentially over all of this, he gives us a sure word that no danger will come near the city of righteousness. Likewise, no one will be able to bring a charge against God's elect, God's people. They have already been accounted righteous, and it is, point, it is pointless to bring a charge against them. The sins of God's people would be judged in the servant king. Our destination is a home with the king, free from all guilt and all danger. God's people march to the tune of God's grace shown to them as they have faith in future grace. We have a hopeful future. We may suffer now, but God will bring us home. Your job may be hard. You may be struggling to make ends meet. You may be suffering physically. God's people are suffering throughout the whole world. Remember the future that God in Christ has secured for you. Keep fighting the fight of faith. The king saves his people by removing their shame and bringing her to safety. Isaiah 55 speaks to the nature of faith the king calls us to. We see that people are saved by grace through faith. The king who saves calls us to trust and obey. Let's start by reading Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 2. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? 
and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Here we see that the empty hand of faith buys that which has taste. Let's zoom in on the state of those who are called. It's those who have empty hands of faith. Empty hands. They're thirsty. They have no money. They're needy, impoverished. But look at what the text highlights. It tells those with empty hands to come to the place where lasting satisfaction is found. Come to the waters. Come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk. Come, buy all that which has taste. Don't waste your money on things that don't bring lasting joy, on things that don't last. Come, buy that which has taste, on things that bring lasting satisfaction, on things that last. Eat that which is good and delight yourself in rich food. And in case we miss it, he tells people who have no money to come and buy all of this luxurious food what's going on here? He's telling us to come and enjoy the gifts purchased by another. There's a price tag on the food, but it's already been paid for. How does one buy that which has taste? They come with empty hands of faith. In context, he calls us to come to him with empty hands of faith. That's what verse 3 tells us. The gift, then, is delighting in the king who saves, the king who died for us, the king who gives us all things. Enjoy the gift purchased by another. Come and worship the king. Pursue a lifetime of joy, delighting in the triune king. He calls us to this feast. It might seem a bit narcissistic that God calls us to sing to him, to worship him, to come to him. But think this through with me. A diamond's value goes up based upon how rare it is. Well, there's only one God, and he's utterly unique. This means that God is of infinite value. The best gift God can give us is himself. That's exactly what we see here. Singing to God, worshiping God is the best thing for us. It's the thing that brings us ultimate satisfaction and joy. He says, don't waste your time in the pursuit of counterfeit gods. They promise joy, but their end is always bitter. Money, sex, relationships, whatever it may be, when made ultimate, don't provide lasting joy. He says, come to the king who is of infinite value. If you're here 
and you're not a Christian, I encourage you to put your faith in Jesus. Christianity is not about a bunch of rules to make us unhappy. It's about pursuing the one who gives life and life abundantly, pursuing the one who gives joy, pursuing the one who tells us to come to the feast. He promises us joy and hardships, not to remove the hardships in this life, but joy he gives in all of this. He gives us himself. Talk to someone here today about what it means to follow Christ. Now in Isaiah 55, 3-5, we see that the empty hands of faith listens. Let's hear what God's word says as we read it. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast love, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander to the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a God that did not know you shall run to you. I mean, a people that did not know you shall run to you, because the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Verse 3 says, Incline your ear. Come to God and listen to his word. And you're to do these things so that you may live. Life is found in him alone. And this is not an empty promise. He gives us the rest of the text demonstrating that this promise is true. The king himself gives us a word that those who trust in him will have life in him. One can have confidence that those who listen in faith have life because this promise is established through God's covenants. Verse 3 says that life is found in the everlasting covenants, which is just another way to refer to the new covenant. Isaiah connects the new covenant with the Davidic covenant here. We learn about the, the Davidic covenant in passages like 2 Samuel 7 and Psalm 89. And the Davidic covenant promises that there will be a king who will reign eternally, bringing peace and justice with him. Isaiah connects the new covenant with the Davidic covenant here because with the establishment of the new covenant comes the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. In other words, the new covenant will bring about the promises of the Davidic covenant. Peace and justice will come through the Davidic servant king who dies for his people. And why is all of this important? Because you can have confidence that those who listen and trust the servant king will have life because that promise is rooted and established and secured through God's covenants. You can also have confidence that those who listen in faith have life because it's established through the king of the world. That's what verse 4 tells us. The servant king is the king of the peoples, both Jew and Gentile. He's the king of the world. He will, as Isaiah 2 tells us, teach the nations the word of God. The king of Israel 
the king of the world, assures us that all those who follow him will have life. Have confidence that those who come to him in faith find life. You can have confidence that those who listen in faith have life because the servant king is full of glory and will attract the nations. That's what verse 5 tells us. The servant king will call the nations who will then come to him in faith. And why? Why do they come? It's because the servant king has been glorified. The infinite perfections of God put on display for all to see attracts those who have faith and they come to him. God will save his people throughout the whole world as they see his glory, are attracted to it by the eye of faith. So we see that the empty hand of faith buys that which has taste and listens to the voice of her king. We see in Isaiah 55, verses 6 and 7, that the hand of faith seeks the Lord while forsaking his old ways. Let's zoom in on those verses now. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. We are told to seek the Lord, to pursue him diligently in faith to run to him. And as we run to him, we run from sin. Run from all your wicked deeds. All of those wicked thoughts too. As we run to him, we run from sin. Look, the text highlights this. The time to do this is today. Right now. Don't wait. This is a matter of life and death. This life is all we got. We don't know when we'll be taken from the Lord and we don't know when he's coming back. We aren't guaranteed tomorrow. Run to Jesus today. Don't wait. Seek him while he is found. Run to him while he is near. This implies that there will be a time where he isn't found or near. Flee from sin and run to Jesus before it's too late. Kill sin by running to Jesus. Kill sin by believing that Jesus is better than sin. He brings lasting joy. The king who saves provides us with a sure word in Isaiah 55, 8 through 13. Look at these sure words with me now. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose. And it shall succeed in the thing for which I have sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. 
The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come the cypress, instead of the briar shall come the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Hold on a minute. Can all of this be true? The wicked pardoned, the unrighteous have everlasting satisfaction and joy? Yes, all of this is true, and you can be sure of it. The text says that we need to forsake our sinful ways because our ways are not God's ways. People don't think or act like God's. God's thoughts and ways are higher than ours. As far as the heavens are from the earth, so God's thoughts are higher than our ways. Take his power, for instance. Just as rain comes and brings forth life, so God's word goes out of his mouth and brings forth life. God will do what he says he will do. His word never returns back empty. It always accomplishes his purpose. When we read the whole book of Isaiah, his word will either soften hearts or harden hearts. Read his word with faith saying, O oh Lord, soften my heart. What news? He will make a people for himself. He will save them. He will bring forth new life and give them the gift of repentance. Yes, you can be sure that the God who, uh, you can be sure that God saves those who trust in his names because his word never returns back empty. He promises us in his word that those who trust in his name will be saved. God creates a people for himself by making promises and he shows those promises to be true so that when believed, people are saved and transformed. God creates a people for himself in his place through his word. And we end with a beautiful depiction of the new life God brings. God will, God's people will sing the tune of praise. He will restore the earth, reverse the curse. And we know that in the person of Jesus, these things have happened already. And we look forward to when he comes back and brings it to completion. What a hopeful future all those in Christ have. So we've seen that God's people sing the tune of praise to the king who saves. The king saves by removing his people's shame and bringing her to safety. The king who saves calls us to trust and obey with empty hands of faith, seeking to delight in his name now and always. Treasure the king who saves as you look to his faithful, never-ending, loyal love for his people. Let's pray.